Welcome to the She Yearns Podcast. I am Terry Strange, and I am so thankful you have joined us today. Thank you for being a part of this community. The She Yearns community exists to lead women to desire more of God in everyday life, making Him evident and desirable to others. Welcome to the She Yearns Podcast. I generally, barring technical difficulty or something else out of my control, produce a new edition every Friday. Last week, I was actually out of town, so I finished it early, scheduled the release, and even announced where we were headed for the next several broadcasts through the summer months. On Friday, I was away from my computer, but more importantly, I was away from my seven children, who were 10 miles from Santa Fe High School. That was experiencing a school shooting that morning, leaving 10 dead and 13 injured. Santa Fe is not our high school, but we play them in our district. It's literally down the road. Our teachers have children who attend the school. Sunday, I sat maybe three seats down on the same row from a teacher from Santa Fe High School who cried her eyes out appropriately all through the service. I sat beside a friend in my small group right after that who plays soccer with the policeman who was shot. I sat behind a mom who's friends with the family whose son was shot after a conversation he had with the killer, the story of which I cannot tell you, who sat across from a woman who employs a couple of the parents whose kids were given the play-by-play before it was even going to the news. It was a horrendous account. My daughter's in a life group with a student who was there experiencing it all. Sometimes normal life is interrupted. Today, we're going to try to make sense of tragedy. In the next brief moments, we're going to look at gut reactions, questions we ask, responses we need to make, and actions we must take. Let's talk first about some gut reactions. Let me assume for the moment you're not the parent who just lost a child in the tragedy or some other tragedy, or the teacher who has to go back to work on a campus that has become a crime scene, or the administrator who will be met with the host of unanswerable, cruel demands of why he or she didn't do this or that or what he or she should have done. Those are worthy of our attention, but just now assume you're the parent or teacher or person down the road across the state or across the country for the atrocity or something similar is all too familiar. What is your gut reaction? After the tears or after the shock of it all wears off. As the parent, I'm just gonna pull mine out. (laughs) I'm just gonna pull them out. My first gut reaction is that public education has failed in many other ways anyway, and I'm just done. We can put them somewhere else, safer, or we can just homeschool them. I'm just being honest. I'm not pointing any fingers. As I sent my seven, I have eight kids, but I only have seven in school. As I sent those out the door, albeit to a very good school district, it's very good. I did so with more hesitation than I had last week and a tremendous sense of helplessness. Let me make just three points. If this type of gut reaction resonates with you, pray about your educational decisions. Pray about them every year for every kid. This is coming from someone who holds a PhD in educational psychology, who has taught at various levels in public school, trained student teachers, taught at the undergraduate and master's level 
in higher education, integrated five non-English speaking older children into our family and then into the public schools and has homeschooled. Every child is different. The needs change. The environment matters. Let God hold the final say in the decision, not what you think is best. My natural gut reaction today is to pull them out. They don't have to go. I'm not saying that won't be the decision next year. What I'm saying is I know that I know that I know that my seven are where they're supposed to be this year. And if Friday's events had occurred at our school and our family had been impacted, I would be a complete and utter mess, no doubt. But I would know that God was in control, orchestrating their lives. And I wouldn't have to worry that I didn't leave it in his control. Another point I make here is this. There is still a need for light in dark places. Evil is everywhere and no respecter of geographical locale, socioeconomic levels, or whether your school is public, private, or it's a co-op. The goal remains to kill, steal, and destroy. There is a need for light in dark places. And Jesus is the only light. You may be the only hope someone can see or hear or touch. I don't know what kind of environment God has placed you in or in what capacity. This I do know. God has strategically placed you already to be light. There is no time for mediocrity in the gospel. These times call upon our leaders and our children and our teens to be firmly established in their beliefs and the sovereignty of God. We need to be able to articulate it simply and succinctly. Our kids must be able to give a reason for their faith when the opportunity to present itself and the skill set to build relationships with people different from themselves. As of today, I cannot pull mine out of the environment in which God has placed them in because I'm afraid. We just saw one of Addie's friends baptized this weekend. This girl has been in my home weekly for months, and I love her. We didn't know her from Adam until my daughter met her at the high school and invited her over and then to church. Thirdly, safety is an illusion. My husband reminds me of this often. I need the reminder. I cannot make them safe. He cannot make them safe. More police protection can't make them safe. Gun control can't make them safe. Do I want people to pass background checks before being able to purchase something life-threatening? Of course. Do I want the school to go through bags? Yes. Do I welcome more police? Absolutely. But this is not ultimately what keeps my kids from experiencing tragedy. Their fate is in the hands of God. We should be smart about protecting our environments, absolutely, but at the end of the day, I cannot protect them well enough to keep them from harm. The other gut reaction is numbness. The morning of the event, I was out of the state, so I frantically tried to utilize all of my resources on my phone for finding out what I could. There was nothing on my Facebook feed, nothing. I have like 1,500 friends and I live in Houston. Finally, I saw one post from a woman on staff at my church. The reports from my kids about what is happening around them with peers and teachers is much the same. Some of this may be a coping mechanism. I understand that. We are so close to the event and the district has been extremely aggressive in beefing up security. It may frankly be so frightening. It may bring out automatic coping strategies. 
To make matters worse, our teachers are forbidden to talk about it with students, only counselors. And we love our counselor. I can't say enough good about her. But such restrictions sort of force these young people into accepting this as a callous normalcy and just moving on. That seems to be what we do as a culture. We just turn a deaf ear to tragedy and keep moving on with our lives. It is a symptom of a larger sin issue. As believers, you and I need to caution ourselves and those we are responsible for in this regard. Hear what Paul had to say about coming days in 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Heartless is what really got me You and I can't afford to be heartless in the wake of tragedy. We must stop and feel it. I know it wasn't your kid. It wasn't anyone I knew either. But you and I bear the responsibility for demonstrating there is value in the preciousness of human life. Not being numb becomes a testimony of the Holy Spirit alive in you and in me, while at the same time holding on to hope. I am finding my children need assistance navigating what I thought should be natural due to the callous and numb environments surrounding them. And it's not just in the public schools, society in general, including casual Christianity. The Word of God calls us to reject this gut reaction toward numbness. When tragedy strikes, it often leads to questions. How could a good God allow this to happen? Or where is God when evil strikes? These may be questions you ask yourself or questions you may face in the midst of tragic events like the Santa Fe shootings. If God is so good, then why? And you need to know there are answers, foundational biblical answers that ground you as a follower of Christ. I can give you quotes. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes well on the topic. I can offer you scripture that articulates that God is not the author of evil, but it was Adam and Eve's rebellion that brought sin into the world and corrupted it. From Genesis 1.31, which says that God saw that everything was good that he had made, And then to Romans 5.12 that talks about the corruption. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's in Romans. And then into Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin. It moves it to our responsibility. So scripture offers this truth until God perfects it one day again. In Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death and mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. So the answers to those big questions are grounded in scripture and you need to know that because sometimes we come to these places and we don't know the answers. The deep questions can have answers to them steeped in scripture. But we also hold God more accountable on a personal level. Questions like, why did he take my friend? or my child, or my spouse, or why did this happen at my school? These questions can be dripping with negative emotion that is part of the grieving process. To these, we often don't have answers. We don't know why. I can't point to a scripture that tells why it was this school or or that individual person. When we find ourselves asking such questions or face-to-face with them, We can respond with what we know. Please know I'm simplifying. I realize every one of 
the things I'm about to talk about could use a book or a shelf of books, at least. When trying to make sense out of tragedy, when too often things and experiences just don't make sense, we need to respond with what we know. We know God's character. God loves. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We know he loves. We also know God is close to the brokenhearted. I just wrote a reading, Can God Restore Me? This is a whole day. God is close to the brokenhearted. If your heart is broken, God can restore you. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 147.3. God is sovereign. That is another thing we can know. God is sovereign. He is over all things declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and i will accomplish all my good pleasure is isaiah 46:10 also god is working good through all situations for his children which is romans 8:27 and 28 and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of god And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That is sort of a promise made to his children. When you and I are trying to make sense out of tragedy, we need to be grounded in how we can confidently respond as believers. We are not left unto ourselves. But then there are some steps we need to take. First step we need to take is fear not. Maybe your gut reaction differed from the one I first discussed. I would venture to say gut reactions stem from emotional responses most of the time. And fear is probably a likely one in a case like this. It's hard not to be afraid in scary situations because it feels like we are entrusting our treasures into the hands of unstable, underaged lunatics ready to snap and take everyone out with a weapon and a homemade bomb because they don't have any friends and have some sort of vendetta from gym class. That's what it feels like. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God doesn't tell us there will not be anything to fear. He commands us not to fear the dreadful and the scary, but tells us to trust Him with our lives and everything we hold dear. If you and I are spending all of our time as believers afraid and in a mess, we cannot help anyone else find hope. You and I will not make any spiritual progress and we will hinder others. Now, that's a straight up word from the biggest scaredy cat of them all. With the seven kids, I had to send out the door. We can't stay stagnant in fear. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With His love, He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Ask God to help you not be afraid so that you can be fearless and hope-filled for someone else who needs Him. You've got to ask Him for help. I've got to ask Him for help. I can't do it without Him. The second thing we have to do is step out. What do you have in mind to do? Is it send a note? Is it a text? Help in some other way? I don't know. We need to step out. When we moved to the Houston area last year, I came sort of kicking and screaming on the inside, but my body was willing because I knew it was the will of God. My joy and delight, though, was not in it. It was difficult to see the hows and whys God would have us leave our current situation to come to this awful, unfriendly place. 
what could God possibly have us do here and where we didn't know anyone? And so I was praying, Lord, are you certain this is where you want us to go and what you want us to do? And as I studied the Word of God, because that's where I find my reliable answers, this one verse struck me personally, and I did not appreciate the surrounding circumstances, but I got the message. It's found in Joshua 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, but we're not going to we're not going to camp on that part. And the Lord said to him, "You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess." What I sensed the Lord communicating to me was that there was still a lot of kingdom work assigned to my plate, and he had to move me to orchestrate the work he had already designed. So He dropped us right in front of a hurricane. I just sent the last worker out last week and paid him and smacked down the church pew from people impacted from a school massacre. I don't exactly know how God would have me step out, but it seems odd that he would be so strategic just to have me sit in my house eating ho-hos. I'm praying how to step out. What should that look like for me? What should it look like for the She Yearns ministry? When you find yourself in the midst of tragedy, You might be the only hope-filled person anyone in your sphere of influence knows. Allow me to encourage you to step out however God would have you do that. Because ultimately, a tragedy like Santa Fe carries spiritual undertones. I want to tell you about George Mueller. I think you will make the connection. I recently finished his autobiography. He lived in the 19th century in England and is most known for his work with orphans, so I was automatically drawn. In his early days, he was a real scoundrel. If he is accurate in the way he describes himself, I would not have liked him at all. But God got a hold of his heart and everything else he had. Mueller decided to trust God for his every earthly need and never to take a salary or to tell anyone of the needs so that he truly had to trust God for everything. Well, God was faithful so that often the idea to help more people grew before the finances to meet the added burden arrived to literally feed them. They went from zero orphans to one, then two, then four houses to serving a thousand orphans, 1,000 kids who had no other hope. People would just send money to the, in the mail, show up with a bunch of stuff, drop off and say, I was just thinking about the children. And time and time again, it was right when they were in deep need, on their knees, asking God for help. And God came through. So he wrote this journal to become a testimony for us that George Mueller was nothing special. That God works this way in every believer's life. If we will just trust Him with our lives and all that we need to do what He has called us to do, to pray about everything, not just financial or temporal needs, but when they were wanting to see God move in the hearts of the children in the orphanage, they prayed for years to see Him move in the hearts of those children in a miraculous way. Now, they saw conversions. Children did indeed come to Jesus with their lives. In 1857, 20 years after first praying about starting an orphanage, one of the little girls died, Carolyn Bailey. Now, they had experienced the death of other orphans before. In fact, Mueller lost one of his own children. But for whatever reason, Carolyn Bailey's death was different. She had become a believer a few months before, and now 50 
and the girls in the orphanage began asking questions about heaven and hell and eternity. 23 of those accepted the Lord as their Savior. Within the next three years, the 9 to 12 year old girls were asking to meet together for our own Bible studies, and 200 of them became believers in a very short period of time. I don't know the totals for the span between those years of how many conversions there were. My point is this, as always, I'm preaching to myself first. We must pray like lives depended on it. We must pray with fervency, with urgency, like it mattered, because lives are at stake now and for eternity. We must pray today alone, but also with people. It's not cool. It may be a small pool. I know it sounds like your grandma. When we see people hurting and they don't know the hope in Christ or how to find it, we must keep praying. When the dust settles and the 72-hour news cycle moves on to something else, we must keep praying. When we see no immediate results, no fruit, and it looks like God is not acting, we must keep praying. My pastor, Brian Haynes, wisely said recently, your relationship before a crisis will inform your faith during the crisis. When life is interrupted by tragedy and you and I once again are forced to make sense of it all, we must keep praying so that in our gut reactions, we keep our eyes on Him. Through the questions, we find our hope in Him. In our responses, we are able to rely on what we know and pray for God to move in the hearts of people in amazing ways. Thank you again for tuning in today. We will be releasing a new episode every week. I would invite you to become a subscriber. And it really makes a difference when you share something here that you find helpful or encouraging. You make an impact. You may never understand the value or difference your suggestion or encouragement made in the life of a friend or a casual acquaintance just by passing a resource along. So please share what you find here with others. I would personally be grateful. Don't hesitate to like us on Facebook or Twitter or leave a review. For more truth-saturated, gospel-centered, spiritually insightful encouragement, please go to www.sheyearns.com where you will find reading plans, articles, and other resources to help stir a desire for God into your everyday life.